0: welcome to voices of the valley a series interviewing growers entrepreneurs educators and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm brought to you by readley college educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology efficient production practices
1: and food safety now here's your hosts of voices of the valley dennis donahue and candace wilson this is Dennis Donahue, and welcome back to another episode of Voices of the Valley. And I am joined, as always, uh, by my good friend, Candace Wilson. Candace.
2: Hi, Dennis. How are you today?
1: Good. Nice to see you. Uh, I think this should be a uh, fun episode for you in particular, because you and our guest, Carl Casale, who is the... Uh, we're going to start out with the senior ag partner for Osprey Ag Science, but he's got a bit of a past and we're going to ask him to talk about that, but I think you share a bit of that with him. So Carl, welcome and we're, and thanks for making the time to join us. Yeah, Thanks for having me. You know, I had a chance to uh, hear you in action in Yuma a couple of weeks ago and uh, I, I sure learned a lot and uh, thought you would be a great guest for our audience and our uh, Western Growers members. So with that in mind, uh, you know, we mentioned the uh, Osprey Ag Sciences, but uh, talk a little bit about, if you if you would, just You know, I accused you of being an ag renaissance man before we got on the air. So uh, talk a little bit about your background, because I think it really we can learn a lot for how to form some of your perspectives once we get into capital and technology and that sort of thing. Sure.
0: So speed version is I'm a farm kid from Oregon. I grew up on a truck farm just south of Portland, and uh, now that's my wife and my blueberry. Commercial operation. We bought the family farm. We've expanded it, but uh, just into permanent crops, and all we do is blueberries. So graduated in the early '80s, similar economic times to what we have right now. Inflation was rampant. I was the first son in our family to graduate from college. My older brother was farming with my dad, and uh, my dad said, "I love you, but I'm not going to borrow money at 16% uh, to expand the operation." And uh, it took a few years, but I did tell him. I, I believe he made the right decision. But I wanted to stay involved in agriculture, so I joined Monsanto in the early '80s, 1984, and started out in sales and a long progression, but finished as the chief financial officer of the company. And I joked that somewhere along the way, I missed a meeting because uh, that's when I became CFO. And I did that for a while. And then I had the opportunity to move up to the Twin Cities and uh, lead large farmer-owned agribusiness in the US, CHS. Did that for about seven years and then got into personal VC investing and then connected with Osprey. They were early investors in Monsanto when we were spun out. So I knew the guys well. And so we started Osprey Ag Science in 2018. And Our entire investment thesis is how do you do more with less? And we had the opportunity, none of us have been venture capitalists before. And so, you know, I grew up in the post World War II narrative of, you know, everybody needs food, just show up in farming, you know, do something involved in agriculture. It's like landing on boardwalk in Monopoly, you're going to get rich, you know, life's great. And we said, well, is that narrative still true? And what really struck me was, and I think this would be a surprise to a lot of people by 2030, about half the world's population is going to be middle class or wealthy. And the other half is going to have the same issue of more calories, you know, just to meet their basic needs. But for half of the world's population, it's, I don't need any more calories, but I do care deeply about how my calories are produced. And so our base thesis is, well, how do you produce more with less? How do you produce more high quality food with less impact on the environment? And so that leads us down the path of biologicals, biopesticides, soil testing, soil management. How do you make synthetics work at lower use rates? How do you make biopesticides work more like synthetics? And so that's basically what I do every day is just focus on those areas. And there's, you know, macro drivers that are going to make that become more real quicker and probably no more than the European Union that basically has a mandate called 50 by 30, which they want a 50% reduction in all synthetic use by 2030. And these mandates come whether the tools to do it exist or not. And they've already had to move away from some of those. But so we're learning from that. And we see that society more likely regulation will probably follow, but consumer tastes and preferences are already going down that path right now.
1: Well, with that in mind, let's start there in terms of your outlook. You mentioned, you know, 1980s, uh, similar times. So having said what you just said and, you know, all the top line trends point in the direction of the, you know, your daily activities, there's no question the venture world is going to be a little different, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, if not the next couple of years. Can you just kind of outline where you see the venture world and what are the things that entrepreneurs should be attentive to, you know, because investors are just looking at things a little differently for now? Sure.
0: This is, um, you know, and I now have the benefit of being doing these, involved in agriculture for almost 40 years now. So, you know, there's these things called cycles and we're in one and it's not an up cycle. And so the question is, you know, how long are are we going to be in this down cycle and have we hit bottom? And the answer on have we hit bottom? The answer is no. The venture world is going to continue to get tougher probably for the next 12 months. And and I would say the big driver of that is there was tremendous amount of outside capital that came into venture capital. A lot of it in the ag space that really wasn't very informed. And the way a lot of these investments work is they're part of a portfolio and venture capital would fall into the category of alternative investments. And a lot of large portfolios have a cap or a mandate on just it can't exceed, let's say, 10 percent of the overall portfolio. Well, if you have a fixed venture capital amount, a dollar, and your portfolio used to be worth ten dollars, you're at 10 percent. But it because the overall what we're seeing in the markets, if that portfolio value declines to $5 and you still have a dollar worth of venture in it, it's not 20% of your portfolio. So there's not a strong appetite to heavy up on venture capital right now as people are trying to understand what's going on. And in the venture capital world, generally the way capital is deployed is if I have $100, I'll invest $50 in brand new companies and I'll hold $50 in reserve for follow-on investments in companies that I've made. Well, in a rapidly declining market where it's very difficult to go find new capital for growth companies are finding themselves having to use up the reserves to prop up their existing investments. So, you know, the additional new capital to fund new growth is pretty tight out there. So what I tell startups in the space are, um, you're going to get a much lower valuation than you would have 12 years ago. I'm 12 months ago, I'm sorry. And you just will. And it's going to take you twice as long to raise money as you thought. So you probably need to understand that. And if you're looking for growth capital, nobody's going to care how much money you've raised so far. And a year ago, you know, it was, well, I raised a hundred dollars before and they thought I was worth $50 before I raised $100. So I was worth 150 and I want another $50. So I'll be worth $200 when we're done. And the answer is no, you're not because nobody's going to care about the $100 that you've spent. It's what have you delivered against it? So everything's being repriced right now. And basically when the new valuation is less than the old valuation, that's called a down round. And I would say today, that's much more the rule rather than the exception. So what I would tell new entrepreneurs in this space are, and this is so amazing. And so simple in the industry, we call that this product market fit. So I invent a widget and I think it's the coolest thing on the planet. And it might be the coolest thing on the planet. You know, it can do all kinds of really cool things and lights and spin and a bunch of other stuff. And you go show it to a farmer and I look at it and say, okay, this is really cool. Satellite imagery is a great example of that. Or, you know, drone imaging or whatever you use. Okay, so fine. What do you want me to go do? You know, I call that the so what? And you'd be surprised how many people have raised a lot of money And they can't answer the so what and they're still seeking to figure out what that is. And if you're looking for growth capital and and you don't have a really tight definition of why this matters to a farmer and how you're going to deliver it in a way that's acceptable to a farmer. The other thing that surprises me is and maybe it should be a surprise, but okay, I discover or invent what I believe is a really cool widget. And I think I'm the only person on the planet who's developed a really cool widget. And I don't realize that there's a hundred other people that have created widgets that they think are really cool as well. Well, the way I'm going to deliver the widgets, I'm going to go sell it directly to farmers. And so, you know, I don't know about all the members of Western Growers and I'm not a big farmer by any stretch, but I do know that I don't get up every morning, have a cup of coffee and then go send it at the end of the driveway to meet with everybody who wants to sell me something that day. You know, I have a trusted advisor that's my technology aggregator. And I'll just tell you, I mean, if it doesn't make my life simpler, I'm not doing it. I'm not looking for more things to go do. I'm looking for fewer things to go do. And that's just so simple, but so lost on, on so many of these. And I particularly see that in the digital space where there's lots and lots of stuff out there, but there's a whole lot of it that's either inactionable or really doesn't make a farmer's life simpler.
2: Probably what you just said is such an important aspect about the growers and the amount of people knocking on their doors and the time limitations and stuff. What has been a process that you've seen that does work? Because certainly part of the conversation is, you know Western Growers has talked about for years, the Salinas Valley meeting the Silicon Valley and speaking two different languages. And in the end, those technologies have to come together to be meaningful on the farm. Have there been any good models or success stories where you've said, you know what, this is the shortest path to getting to that something marketable?
0: So within our own portfolio, And what I should say is we stop at FarmGate. So we're all about tools to make farmers more productive. So there's a lot of funds that are basically literally dirt to plate. So anything involved in the food ag space is fair game. And they tend to be generalists. We're very focused on a very narrow band in what we hope we understand. And we can add value through insight to our portfolio companies to help them avoid some pitfalls. So every farmer facing or company that I've invested in, prohibition would be a strong word. But we say, you're not going to try and make a living putting a bunch of boots on the ground selling this to farmers. So whatever the technology it is, you need to find out where the trusted advisor is or where the network is and somebody who's already calling on that customer that they can integrate it into an IPM program or a portfolio to go sell it. Because you're not going to put a bunch of boots on the ground independently go call on farmers, just not, because that's not what farmers want. They want simplification, not complication. And so basically, that's basically how our model is basically set up. And that will, I think, become more of the norm. I have not yet seen the transformational technology that can bypass everybody's trusted advisor that farmers will be clamoring for to say, yep, I want another interaction with you because you've got something that I can't get anywhere else or, or is truly, you know, that innovative. The second one is where I think a big need is, particularly around biologics, you know. So people say, hey, you know, will you go test XYZ and, and just go apply it? Well, the answer is no because I don't have the time to do replicated trials personally. And, you know, I mean, the old saying that a farmer really gets about 50 tries on something. If we think it's a good idea, we'll do it on the whole farm and evaluate it, because I don't want to waste that extra one, two, three years of benefit if it's there, so long as I know I'm not going to do something that's going to hurt my crop. You know, and so, you know, we'd be less risk averse in specialty crops, just because you lose so much time on basically the benefit of it. But what people don't realize, there's no real system selling in terms of how biologics fit in. You know, when you look at the synthetics, the beauty of them are they work so well and bugs are either dead or they're not, you know, disease is either cured or it's not or prevented or not. And so these are things that farmers get to understand, but particularly when you get into the area of biostimulants and soil health, you know, I use your microbial package that's going to stimulate plant health. Okay. So how do I know it's not, you know, basically the humic acid I put down, you know, or the granular urea that I applied or the AMS, liquid AMS that I'm running through the drip, or or how do I isolate and attribute that? And there's so many external variables. And so I think a more of a programmatic approach to it with an understanding and, and heavy dose of testing that goes along with it so that you understand what you're doing. But, but so much of it is, is sold like, you know, put this elixir on and, and you're going to see great things. And, and you just can't do that in isolation,
1: in my view. Question for you. And I, and I do want to get, you know, because you spoke a couple of weeks ago when I saw you in action about some emerging areas of interest, despite the economy, now regardless of what type of investment they get near term and obviously crop protection tools were in there but I was intrigued in your presentation where you also said crisis equals opportunity and some of the mega success companies were built in a downturn does that work the same and you never know uh, you know where i guess you're going to strike gold but does that same concept apply in ag and you know and admittedly I look at the world from a specialty crop view. And so maybe the Midwest and rogue crop slash product give you a better chance of that. But just that concept, does the ag space even lend itself to a big winner?
0: Well, as an investor, the benefit that we're getting right now, and um, I heard a Silicon Valley investor in June, and we think more Midwestern centric, but I'm a specialty grower, he referred to what was coming and it was very prophetic. This was in June that we're about to enter the period of the great cleanse. So You know, basically what we're seeing as investors is you're immediately learning what's good and what's not. So, you know, we're before if there was 100 companies in a given space, the top 75 would get funded, you know, just because they were along for the ride. You know, now you better be in the top quartile or you're not going to get any money. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's literally the separation of the wheat from the chaff is what we're seeing right now. And even those really, really good companies are having difficulty raising cash right now and are certainly doing it valuations that are much lower. I would guess today, 30% lower than what they were a year ago. And I think before we're done, they will be 50% lower is where this market's basically going to settle out. But to your point, Dennis, fundamental need doesn't change. And so, you know, kind of the big areas that we're seeing right now, and I'll start with what I'm focused on. There will be a global transition from synthetics to uh, biologics and biopesticides and some form or for fashion and from an integrated standpoint, but this transition is already occurring rather abruptly in the EU. And one example in the EU is they grow a lot of oilseed rape. It's a really big product over there, particularly in France. Well, amitroleperid was banned as part of this transition. Well, everybody quit raising oilseed rape because they couldn't economically do it. You know, without sucking insect control that was provided. So then they had to back up and give emergency exemption. So in order to utilize the technology, well, that's incredibly disruptive if you're a farmer and you can't plan your operation because you don't have the tools to farm. So some kind of a thoughtful, methodical transition and integration, I think, makes a lot more sense. But I mean, we are all going to be faced with that. We are not an organic grower in our own operation. We just haven't found the economics to be compelling for us to do so. It's not a philosophy deal, but we do have a consultant that specializes in organic agriculture just so we learn what's coming. And we learn how to integrate that into our operation because you know it's this is going to happen. I mean, it's this is not something that's going to be
1: a choice. You know, it's interesting what you said. And I'm asking this question without the normal growers lament, because I know all the speeches about complaining about regulation. So I'm quite capable of doing them the drop of the hat. And you know, you you might even be better. I'm I'm gonna guess you're even better better at it than me from time to time. But on, on a serious note, you know, you mentioned thoughtful transition. And, you know, at the senior management levels you've operated on, why do you think government or regulators are just not uncomfortable with the idea of, hey, let's do a thoughtful transition? And, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? And, okay, here's how we can do it. But this is how long it'll really take. How do we get there? Well, so the, uh, the simple answer is, I don't know,
0: because okay. there's, there's such a fundamental disconnection from those that are making the regulation, from those that produce the food. And I just don't know that they care. And, you know, I can make the argument that says, if I mandate it, you'll figure it out. You know, you're still in business. You know, you haven't gone anywhere. And I do believe that's a very strong, strong sentiment. And so you influence where you can. You know, organizations like Western Growers are great at it. There's other advocacy, you know, political advocacy groups at the state and federal level that try to influence legislation and they can influence legislation, but it's much harder, more difficult to influence the regulatory agencies just because of unilateral authority that they have. And it's not like this is an event. This has been an ongoing trend.
1: Well, I was um, just hoping you were the one who actually did know the answer to the question because we haven't found them yet. No, I mean, so, so, you know, the way that we think
0: about it is, I mean, you know, regulatory environment in Oregon, you know, isn't particularly easy. We follow what happens in California pretty closely. And I said, what happens down there happens up here just a little bit later. And, you know, so, you know, we had new regulation come through. And basically, um, I sent a letter to my representatives, a letter to my state senator. And, you know, we now have mandatory overtime. Up here in Oregon, and I just said, I just, just said two things. Number one, nobody on my farm is going to work overtime, and number two, we're going to displace human labor with capital as quick as we possibly can. And that's not a threat; that's a necessity for survival. And there would be some that make that transition and ones that won't. And there's always tremendous pressure on agriculture, right? But we're now in another event, and it's not getting talked about at all. And I don't care whether you're you're growing. You know, lettuce in the desert or you're you're growing fruit up in in Salinas or spinach or wherever, or your blueberries in Oregon or you're growing corn in Iowa, this cost of money is a really big deal. And the external pressure that's going to put on margins and farming, it's going to be transformational. I mean, there will be a shakeout that comes from this. And then when you add on the, the additional layers of regulatory pressures that go along with that, you know, it's just going to put a tremendous amount of pressure on farmers, and then and then you get the generational aspect of it, where you know the average age of the American farmer is probably approaching sixty net. now. It was fifty eight point five a year or two ago, which, believe it or not, is actually much lower than Japan and much lower than the EU. But you know, there gets a point in everybody's life where you've got to ask yourself, am I up for one more rodeo? You know, do I have the energy to continue to do this? And so there's just a tremendous amount of pressure on our food supply. You know, I mean, food's great, but somebody's got to produce it, and there's just no consideration for what it takes to do that, which leads me to another area that we see as a huge opportunity and necessity. And we call that automated intelligence. And that's replacement of human labor with with automation. And it's here. And it has to be. You don't have the labor. And if you think about the sophistication of a lot of the equipment that's being employed in agriculture right now, you just can't go get somebody off the street and say, you know, how would you like to drive a, a sprayer? How would you like to drive a combine? You know, how would you like to whatever, whatever, whatever? It's just not out there. So, I mean, that's a necessity and I know, you know, labor is a big issue in California, Arizona, the desert. It's a big issue up here. Again, we're not a very big operation, but uh, normally we hire about, flex up to about nine to 12 high school college kids to help, you know, load semis and do stuff like that. We had three this year. So I got, my, my wife's actually the managing partner of our farming operation because I still invest full time. And I like to brag that I got promoted from chief pallet jacker to forklift driver. So I could, <laughs> so I could spell our other forklift drivers when they had to go on break. But I mean, we're, you know, and you know, I grew up doing it, but I mean, and I, my, my big question is, where'd they all go? You know, and, and it wasn't, you know, you know what labor cost is down in California, Arizona. I know what it is up here. And it's it's not because we weren't willing to pay for it. We just can't get it. And so, you know, this is going to happen. And, and the good news is it's starting the visual recognition. This is moving at an incredibly fast pace. I mean, we're invested in a robotics company. Another one of our pillars is controlled environment, agriculture, greenhouse. And then from that has evolved our intelligent automation pillar. But we actually have a portfolio company that's working on uh, basically automated harvest of cherry tomatoes in a greenhouse, who can optically sense which ones are ripe, which ones aren't, and actually have the mechanical fingers that can pick a ripe cherry tomato and put it into a tray without bruising it. That's here now. We have another portfolio company basically that's doing automated pruning in wine grapes. And I was actually talking to an entrepreneur out of uh, University of Michigan who's interested in automated blueberry pruning, and that's still one where there's still a lot of human decision that needs to be made because you can't just hedge it. You have to selectively pull canes out. But uh, the general rule of thumb, and it's a lot more right than wrong, is you rotate the wood in your plant out every six years. So every year you want to take out one sixth of your oldest wood, which tends to be the largest caliper. Well, what he's working on now is basically you know an automated robot that can go down a row, optically look at the bottom of the plant, see where the largest cane is within that plant, selectively cut that out and pull it into the center of the aisle. We call those big cuts and if we could automate that, that would be huge for us um, because then we just have to send a follow-up crew in to do the fine cuts, you know, because it's, it takes a lot of work, even with pneumatic pruners to cut out an inch and a half piece of wood and that'll be here. So, I mean, you know, it's repetitive actions, you know, we, we have to plant grass down the, the rows, what we call the aisles between our plants. Cause it's so wet up here in the winter. If you have to go out and spray, you'll bury a tractor if you don't have grass, but we have to mow that grass all summer as well. And we have to put a person on the tractor to mow the grass. Well, you know, we have an order in right now for an autonomous electric tractor that we use for spraying. I'm sorry, for mowing. And I want to upgrade my sea and spray technology. And so pretty soon we'll be able to have automated sea and spray technology to go down the row where, you know, I don't have to have somebody on a, a tractor or, or, or crew going through trying to spot spray, you know, weeds in, in 90 degree weather in August. So, I mean, this is all stuff's coming really, really quickly. And I think it's not going to be an option. It's going to be a necessity, you know, if we all want to stay in the businesses that we've, we've chosen to be in.
2: Can you talk a little bit, Carl, about the, you talked about the imagery and the power of the imagery and then sea and spray technology. Is there another natural evolution about where, what are we capable of from there? And I'm associating this back to your world of biologicals and identification of insects and pesticides, you know, the regulatory environment in California, Arizona, um, and so many specialty crops requires a PCA. Is there a day when the robot is the PCA and the imagery is powerful enough, you know, to pull all of those trusted advisor roles together?
0: So I don't think whether it's a PCA in California or my field representative up here, you know, that's basically got their consultant's license. I don't know that they get displaced. I do think that becomes a lot more sophisticated. So, so what's an obvious opportunity? You know, go try and find 100 field scouts to run, you know, eight, you know, they're, they're basically ATVs through fields to physically manually scout. It's getting close enough to where you could have automated, you know, flight sensing of insect movement, disease detection in the field. And so basically, if that gets downloaded to my trusted advisor and to me and my iPhone in real time, then we can have a real discussion about, hey, what are we going to do? And I'll talk about another piece of technology in a sec, but spotted wing drosophila is our number one pest up here in Berries. It's a soft fruit pest and there's a zero tolerance on the, with our fresh shippers for it. So we have to proactively spray at least weekly and, and it's five to seven days late in the season. Well, if you know what your flight patterns look like and we have a pretty good idea of if you see one, how many there are, then you can in real time make recommendations and paired with the question of when you're going to go harvest it next. So now you can get that paired with the material with the appropriate PHI and you didn't lose two, three days because, you know, that wasn't the period when your physical scout was going to go in the field. So what does that solve? That's a labor issue, right? Labor replacement issue. But I get better outcomes in real time and I get better decision making tools to partner with my PCA or my agronomist. My field rep to help me make more informed decisions. There's a lot of work in the area. It's not quite there yet. It's getting pretty close, and that's an area of basically that's a classic area of automated intelligence that we would see as be a great opportunity. And it's just not you know physical replacement. But once I do that on scale, so think about this. So think about every grower that's a member of Western Growers and they're using automated sensing within their fields, and it's standardized. Okay. You know, I could start to see real interesting patterns around naval orange worm, you know, flight patterns and almonds, for example. I mean, now all of a sudden, because you've got consistency of collection, you now have the ability to consistency, to to have consistency of analysis. And that's where the real power is this is going to come longer term, is uh, predictive analytics. You know, when we see temperatures like this, when we see dew points like this, moisture patterns like this, It's a pretty safe bet. You know, you're going to have a powdery mildew issue coming in spinach and Salinas because of the fog. You better get on that or whatever that's going to be. And I mean, this isn't long-term stuff. This is short to midterm, which is five years or less. You know, it's the curse of some would say getting old. I would say getting wiser. I mean, this is getting, this has always been, this has been fun for 40 years and it's getting ready to get real fun because this is going to change at a pace that's going to be really incredible and really cool to see and be a part of. And Dennis, this gets back to your, directly to your comment you know, stress is, you know, it's fight or flight, right? Stress is there's no greater catalyst for innovation than that. Or if you don't want to innovate, you know, I tell people you're going to retire one way or another, probably ought to sell it now. You still got <laughs> equity before your bank tells you that you're retired, that you don't have anything left. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's real. I mean, this is moving so quickly and there's such a history in California, Arizona. I mean, farmers have been doing this forever, right? I mean, in terms of with the pressure, constant pressures, water, regulatory, I mean, if you're not up for the fight, you know, you're probably not already in this business. You probably left a while ago, but the good news is there's tools
1: coming to help the fight. And and I think that's the exciting part
0: and they're coming pretty quickly.
1: Well, just like you laid out, you know, we're going to see this shift, you know, we, I'm I'm doing a moderating panel next week, which we've called, uh, you know, less chemistry, more biology, you know, you've just addressed it, you know, instead of diagnostics past it's predictive future that and that sounds like the big shift and that's where it, it was interesting and, and and I speak as a layman and you know I was a pretty uh, simple uh, specialty vegetable grower shipper but uh, you know you haven't been with Monsanto and uh, you know I'm sure you can imagine there was kind of a cocked eyebrow or two at, you know a billion dollars for climate corporation but when I heard you speak in Yuma and just how the digitization of ag and if you can get information like Candice is asking about all, all of a sudden I mean, you really do realize the value proposition of, of information and particularly if you can predict things as opposed, you know, it's interesting. I've had a number of growers tell me recently, look, I I don't need a history of whatever happened. And in fact, Yuma has been the place that's really kind of raised it. They said, look, I have to order my water, you know, four to seven days. You know, can I find a tool that'll predict when I should place that order? you know, that type of thing. So this whole shift to predictive, you know, that seems to be the money game in this, in all of this. Yeah. The only value that I
0: see in the past is to inform the future. Sure. You have to have those data points, but to, you know, to, to grind over what happened on my farm last year, I know what happened on my farm last year. (laughs) I lived it. So it's basically, how does it help? And I think the other area, if you can get enough data density within a relevant geography for a grower, whatever that is, I mean, you know, is it Salinas to Monterey on the coast? I mean, whatever a farmer views is a relative comparative data set. So it's good to know what happened based upon what I did on my farm, but it'd also be interesting to know how am I comparing against the aggregate? And so, you know, I wouldn't be too thrilled if everybody said, here's, you know, here's the farmer, here's the field, here's exactly what happened, you know, for all the obvious reasons. But if you want to compare what I did to all the other farmers in the comparable data set and aggregate, and they say, well, you know, you think you're a great farmer, but do you realize you're only in the 50th percentile, Um, And here's some interesting correlations that we see. And I can opt in or opt out of that. But if I don't want to supply my data, then you can't get comparative data, right? And automation is a great leveler, basically, of that data collection. Because when farmers self-report You know, depending upon, you know, even if we mean well, we're not collecting, if there's a hundred of us, we're not all collecting data in exactly the same way. So you're not getting that apples to apples comparison because the data wasn't all collected in the same way. If you're all using the same automated data collection system, then it is. That's very powerful in terms of the analytics. And it's absolutely critical to get meaningful comparative analysis, basically, between farms. But this area is really, really going to emerge. And one other, you know, as we think more broadly, and we haven't invested in pheromones, but, you know, mating disruption is another area of non-pesticidal insect management. And that's, the, that's how I think about the category very broadly. And there's innovations continuing there. I mean, one of the big challenges with pheromones is the human intervention that's required to constantly replace the bait, right? The duration has been relatively short and there's some folks working on it. And another area that's emerging and, and it's one we have invested in is uh, sterile male insect technology. Been around for a long, long time. Originally it was done through gamma ray irradiation. That's done on seeds too, by the way. And basically you create mutagenesis within the insect population, the males, and then you try to find or select for sterility for genetic mutation and the same thing, you know, seeds, other attributes. is how to increase a larger population, but still based upon selection and observation, uh, which is how traditional breeding has been done for basically 10,000 years. You know, the next evolution of that is biotech. And we all know that you take a gene of interest, you put it into a plant, very specific, controls an insect, permits herbicide to be sprayed over the top and not kill it. That's been around now for close to a couple of decades, maybe more. And then the new area is what I would call precision guided sterile insect technology. And we actually invest in a company called Agrogene, whose initial proof of concept insect is spotted wing grossphilia. And we're looking at olive fruit fly next and, well, navel orange worm and olive fruit fly. But it's a much more precise way to basically snip or delete that gene that's associated with, or a gene associated with, sterility. And so basically, there can be no conference of genetic material. It's got a built-in kill switch on it because it's sterile. It can't reproduce in the environment. And that technology is looking very, very promising. We've achieved 100% sterility in our populations, getting our data back from our USDA lab trials, confirmation trials right now. And they'll move to field trials and ultimately registration. And again, that's part of an IPM process. So, you know, you could easily imagine you have automated flight sensors in the field. Uh, We already know kind of the relativity, if you see one, how many there are. We also know that it's going to take five to 10 sterile males for every fertile female that you find in the field. And so you can scale up about what you need, not so much in California where they use pie boxes, but in areas where they supplement with bumbles. I mean, it's basically just a little box you, you put and we know exactly how many acre you need, per acre you need. And so basically you can manage your population down. You can also put on your field borders because they come in from the field borders to manage your population down. And then you can decide, you know, do I really want to hit it harder with a synthetic based upon my population? Do I want to use a softer insecticide to basically help manage that population down? So these are all tools in a toolbox. And I think that's how we're going to need to start thinking about this. There'll be synthetic tools around for a long time, but we're not going to be able to be entirely reliant upon them because there's some great ones that we use today that aren't going to be here. And in the case of the organic insecticides that work really, really well, because they work so well, they've been overused and we're always starting to see resistance to some of those as well. So I think it's going to imply a level of integration in our toolkit and being thoughtful about it in a way that we haven't had to before. And so it's planning, right? If I know I've got this problem every year, whatever that problem is here's the toolkit. How do we want to think about it? You know, from the time we understand what's happening through our sensors, when do we need to get something done? And so you can do it today. It's just going to get a lot. Uh, I don't want to, nothing's easy, but it, it, you know, through the sophistication, these tools, I think we're going to be able to plan and execute much better than we have previously. So I'm optimistic basically about the future.
1: You know, one of the things Candace and I like to chat about uh, sometimes with our guests is, you know, one of our initiatives at Western Growers is we're talking about developing the the next generation of ag worker, given everything you have laid out, and uh, it certainly has a scientific bent to it. Are we talking about job creation, new new jobs, uh, kind of a new kind of worker? Because it, it sure sounds, you know, for instance, you might invest in it. Of course, in your case, you're the outlier. You might actually do it since you're doing the forklift driving as well. But by and large, the investors or the principals of our companies. They're not out in the field. And, you know, Candace asked about PCAs and that type of thing. Their future, it sounds like their future, you know, unfortunately, at least in California, they're pretty good at continuing ed. It sounds like that ain't going to change anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I I think the biggest issue as we think about the trusted advisor, and and if this does get to your question, this is probably one of the biggest structural issues that we've got globally in agriculture is knowledge transfer and who's going to do it. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about who supports the average farmer today, they look a lot like the average farmer and they're not getting younger either. And so we, we are going to have a huge supply shortage of what I believe what we would think of as a traditional PCA in California or agronomist in mid- Midwest or advisor, you know, up here in the PNW. And so I, I think there's going to be one well, example, right? Today, with a thing called FaceTime on an iPhone, you can get a medical consultation, diagnosis and prescription basically on FaceTime. Those tools exist, so why can't you do that in agriculture? And that won't be a luxury, that that will be a necessity. And if you've got automation, I was talking about the engineer in Michigan. So I was literally out drone spraying my blueberries this summer. And when I was waiting for the drone to come back, I was FaceTiming with him, showing him a picture of the base of a blueberry plant in the field I was in and saying, see the big one? That's the one I want gone, you know, and and that's real time. I mean, so and that's going to become a necessity as well. But that's going to be more of a cultural intervention, I think, because the technology exists today. But anyway, that, that work or the future, you know, when I was a kid, I was judged by, you know, how straight I could cultivate without getting cultivator blight, right? And, you know, basically knocking plants out. Well, you know, if you can plan on GPS, you can cultivate on GPS. That's no longer an issue. And pretty soon that'll be autonomous as well. So my point is agriculture will continue to evolve into a knowledge-based profession. And I can't think of a better, funner one uh, to be in. The labor supply coming into it, you know, the, what what agriculture is today, let alone what's going to be tomorrow, we have a huge perception problem in terms of what it means. And if you think about where a large portion of that population could come from, and, you know, all our families came here from somewhere, right? You know, so we're all the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of immigrants. But if you look at the most recent immigrants to their country, and you look at the work that those people have done in the fields, and they're supporting their children going to college, they said, you know, I worked in fields; so you don't have to. And so, you know, a huge portion of our available labor supply or potential, you know, they're being coached to not go into agriculture because right. there's I a, a, I don't say disconnect, there's not an appreciation from what, you know, their parents grew up with and did to what it could be basically for your children. And we, we have exactly the same issue basically up here is where's the next generation of farm leadership going to come from, you know, and a lot more of the repetitive activities like I've talked about, about those will become automated, but that's going to take some time. You know, perfection of harvesting equipment, you know, for fresh pack, you know, lettuce, celery, broccoli, you, know, you you pick it. And there's some varieties that are being developed in order to make that easier as well. Broccoli stalks that are, you know, low leaf, tall stalks, so basically you can cut it and, and things like that. But those things are going to take more time. But the obvious ones are human repetitive activities, collaborating between, you know, rows of wine grapes or, or table grapes, right? Mowing between blueberry aisles, you know, those are almost here now. Automated spraying with C and spray. There's stuff happening in the area right now. It's just scale is an issue as always is when you get started. It's too slow to be deployed basically on scale, but it's beginning to work. So that'll be, be kind of the next one. And and if I had to guess, hand harvest labor replacement will be kind of the last one to go, just because it's the tougher, the motor rep, motor skill replication on that fine those fine skills or whatever. It's not quite where it needs
1: to be, but but it'll get here yeah no well when you hear it's getting done with cherry tomatoes and you know then you've got to believe uh, it is on the way candace do you as we uh, wrap up candace do you have any uh, last questions certainly all of this is very thought-provoking
2: i do have one more question and when you were talking about the precision breeding CRISPR technology when you're talking about the insects versus like plant breeding is the regulatory environment different in that regard or, you know, what's unique in the regulatory environment?
0: No, it's a great question. So basically the introduction of plant biotechnology, where a gene of interest was taken from a bacteria or whatever, you know, well, in the case of insect protection, Bacillus thuringiensis taken out of the soil, that bacteria was inserted into the plant, that plant could defend itself against, you know, basically... Um, Corn rootworm, European corn borer, I mean, you know, things that that spend part of their life in a larval form. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was the insertion of a gene into a plant that was not, you know, indigenous or inside that plant to begin with. And so that basically was regulated as GMO, still is to this day. The EU has made it all but impossible to register or to utilize GMO technologies. And I haven't followed up on it for a while, but it used to be, I'm thinking of Germany, for example. You had to post a notification in the town square of your intent to actually use that technology on your farm and then there'd be a public hearing. So yeah, you can do it, but you really can't do it, right? I mean, the regulation, the the sundry regulations were so burdensome that farmers wouldn't go do it. With the evolution of CRISPR-Cas technology, it is not regulated the same as GMO, basically in the US. It is regulated as GMO um, in the EU, even though, and I'll talk about technology a bit more in a second, even though you're not introducing foreign genes into the plant. Interestingly enough, the UK has left the EU and they're saying they're going to regulate it more like the US does and not like the EU does. And so, you know, basically, you know, like anything, there's politics and science that are involved in any regulatory regime. But the beauty of CRISPR-Cas is, and it's been around now for over a decade, basically it's deleting a gene of interest in the genome and then the genome will self-repair itself. DNA will basically fuse itself back together in the present elimination of that gene. And so in the case of the male sterility, there's many genes that regulate fertility, but this one, this technology came out of the UC system, basically identified genes of interest that regulated fertility. So basically it was once you remove those genes, that insect became infertile. And as opposed to using a radiation where it might be partially, you know, fertile, partially not, but you know, it doesn't have high survivability. It's ver- that's very imprecise. This is incredibly precise. And you can do the same thing in plants or seeds where you may want to upregulate disease resistance. You might want to upregulate, you know, firm fruitness for shipping quality or whatever, but you are regulating or manipulating the existing genome of that plant. So there's like 25,000 genes in spinach that do all kinds of different stuff. And so basically with CRISPR-Cas, you could find one of interest, one that maybe confers better resistance to powdery mildew. You could upregulate that. If there's um, a gene that you could, you know, delay bolting or elimination of bolting in spinach, for example, you could, you could basically silence that gene And so you can either you can delete them, you can you can insert more genes basically into that genome that's present within the plant. And then also you can upregulate a gene if you want more of something and you can downregulate a gene if you want less of something. So within the confines of the existing genome of the plant, you're not adding anything new, but you can dial it up. You can dial it down. You can add it. You can make it go away. And we're just now beginning to see the products come out of that enhanced soybeans for oil content, for healthy oils, for example, I know there's some work being done in the fruit space right now. We're doing it in the insect space, being done in, in human and animal health now as well. And so we're, we're just kind of catching up on that. But it's going to be a very powerful tool.
1: Just as we wrap up and you've uh, talked about your 40 years in and still pretty darn enthusiastic and, uh, you know, a lot of new things coming. And one of the other conversations Candice and I find ourselves in, we think ag, I mean, there's so many great career opportunities there's a lot more going on than what people realize. It isn't just you know being in the fields type of deal. And it seems like for all the really positive things, for, for whatever reason, either we don't get our story out, we're on the defense. And just like you talked about, there's kind of a structural change coming in terms of knowledge transfer. Any thoughts on how we uh, convey, hey, listen, ag is a way more exciting deal than you think. How do we get that message out? And Any thoughts? You've certainly been involved with some companies with resources and how do you you affect structural change around thought? Any thoughts you have would be, uh, I think, certainly welcome. Yeah,
0: so I can't remember who told me this, but basically it was in uh, the digital consulting space in ag, right? So think about a trusted advisor. And so basically the thought was, if I can get somebody who understands and is proficient with computers and technology, I can teach them ag a lot easier than I can teach somebody who's been around ag for a long time than I can, you know, basically computers and, and digital. So, you know, there's lots of uh, young adults going to college, even though numerically that population is declining just demographically in this country, right? And I think that's a bit of our labor issue as well. So if we think about the farm of the future, you know, are, are we going to the recruiting fairs in the engineering schools? Are we going into the environmental sciences? Are we going to the biology? We should be recruiting where agriculture is going, and that's who who we should be selling a lot harder than you know. And, and the traditional sciences are there, but that population is getting pretty small. So I was just talking to a, a professor who basically was in the UC system, and in their ag business degree program at this particular university, seventy five percent of their kids came from non ag backgrounds, which is awesome. You know, a lot of Southern California kids who just had an interest in food and ag. That we got to do a much better job collectively across the U.S. of bringing those kids in. And um, my son's a junior in college. He's our youngest, and he's majoring in finance with a concentration in ag. You know, he wants to get into you know, basically mergers and acquisitions in the ag space. But the big appeal for him is beyond the finance piece, he thinks agriculture is really cool. And, and I think we can't lose sight of, you know, and I always tell people, there are lots of ways to make a living, you know, as long as they're legal. Um, <laughs> but you know, when you can wake up every day and say, I'm doing something that's really important. You know, I'm helping feed people. I'm helping feed people in an environmentally responsible and sustainable um, way. And this is a very par- passion. The next generation come up is, is very purpose driven. That's a great message to get out. You know, so I, my message hierarchy would be with what I just ended with. Hey, you know, if you wanna make a difference in the world and, and have a lot of fun doing it and something really exciting, agriculture is where you wanna be. And, and here's how you're gonna make that difference and, and basically communicate to them and get to that population early in their careers, give them internship experiences um, and they're going to become our best recruiters uh, for our industry. You know, it's, it's not folks like me have been doing it for a long, long time, but
1: it's going to be the next, genera- ger- next generation recruiting the next generation. Candice, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. What do you think?
2: I love that. That next generation recruiting the next generation and recruiting for the future of ac. I love it.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a tagline in there somewhere. So we'll uh, we'll we'll figure that out and make sure we uh, spread the message. No, Carl, listen, I, I was really looking forward to this conversation and I, I sure learned a lot and we're grateful for your time. We know you're busy and traveling and all that good stuff. So thanks very much for joining us. Yes, Candice, thank you very much. And it was a ton of fun. Yep, you too. And uh, best wishes for the remainder of the year and the holidays. You as well. Thanks thank so much. you. All right, okay. Candice, what do you yeah. say? Should we come back again next week and do it?
2: Let's
1: do it. All right, let's do it. That's been an ep- another episode of Voices of the Valley, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit readleycollege.edu.